there was this fellow who was challenged in the area of laundry. And he was in the laundry room, and he called out from the laundry room asking his wife, what setting do I wash my t-shirt on? And she said, well, what does your shirt say? And he held it up and yelled back, University of Auburn. You know, there's a lot of confusion today, especially in some places, about what it is in the world you do with things. And there's a tremendous confusion in our day about behavior and what is right and what is wrong. And I will tell you, when people pay more attention to entertainment and to news sites, and they pay more attention to their friends than they do the Word of God, Christians even can become confused when they value the opinions and thoughts and insights, so-called, of the world than they do their God. Can be. And when that happens, they become especially vulnerable to demonic attack. And they will almost always lose in spiritual warfare. When the devil comes down to Georgia, he assaults righteousness. And so I want you to join me in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 14, where we're going to look this morning at how to be protected by righteousness. And Paul compares this to a breastplate. You see a Roman soldier off to your left and to my right, he is wearing a breastplate that's made of several pieces of leather. Sometimes that was the case, sometimes it was made of mail, and uh, the soldier would find protection of his torso in that. The Bible teaches in Psalm 71-2 that David prayed, Lord, deliver me in your righteousness. One of the best ways to be protected from demonic attack and the misery that follows that, especially failure, is to walk in righteousness. God's righteousness functions as a breastplate. And it's terribly important then that we have a hungry, thirsty commitment to His righteousness. Now, I know I'm mixing my metaphors, but I think you will understand that. Now, when we talk about righteousness, what is it that we mean? Well, there are really two kinds of righteousness that are in the New Testament. One happens to be the righteousness that Jesus Christ gives us when we place faith in His cross and resurrection. It is a gift, and He clothes us in righteousness, and we're able to stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, and then the Father begins to treat us and nurture us, and care for us, and love us as if we have the very righteous life of Christ and that we had achieved that. Now, we don't. We don't do that. But He gives it to us because we've received the righteousness of Christ in Himself. Romans 5.17 talks about the gift of righteousness. And the good news is today is that you can receive the, good, the gift of righteousness today if you will reject a life outside of Christ and trust the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God's very willing to give that to you today because He loves you. And Jesus was slaughtered at the cross to achieve and purchase that for you. In other words, you do not have to appear before God today with your behavior. Because your behavior, like mine, is nothing but failure. And even the good things we've done have not been done with the zeal and the wholeheartedness and the purity they should have been done in. Isaiah said our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. And that's a really grotesque term. Go back and study it. I'm not going to elaborate on it here today, but it's gross. It really is. 
And uh, that, that's what it is. But you don't have to come before God with your own purity, your own virtue, your own performance, your own behavior, your own betterment. That's not necessary. And it won't work, and it will fail every time. You can appear before God with the righteousness of Christ if you will give yourself to Jesus Christ in return. When you give Him your sins and your guilt and your faith, He gives you His righteousness. And at the end of the service, at the end of the sermon today, we're going to invite you to receive that gift of righteousness, and Jesus Christ will clothe Himself all over you, and God will begin to treat you as if you had the performance and behavior of the Lord Jesus. Now, is that not good news? Is that not enough to wake everybody up? What good news? So there's a gift of righteousness. That's not what Paul is talking about in verse number 14. What Paul is talking about here is not the gift of righteousness, but the behavior or the practice of righteousness. And so Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 14 reads in this way. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so righteousness is a guard. It's a protection. The behavior and the performance and the actions of righteousness are a protection from demonic and satanic um, attack. Well, what, what must I do then to be protected? Well, Christ's righteousness protects you when you trust several things. One, it's suitability. When you protect, uh, it will protect you when you trust righteousness suitability. Well, what does that mean? Well, back in 1965, the Rolling Stones, probably the most successful rock band ever, released a recording entitled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. It's called Satisfaction. And uh, that, that's remar it, it's remarkable that they would admit that. They'd sold a large number of albums, and in 1995, they released it again. And they're still singing. 20 years later in 95, I Can't Get no satisfaction. They have sold 240 million albums, and they still can't get any satisfaction. They, they have had all the money, all the sex, all the drugs, all the relationships, all the romance, all the fame, all the acclaim, everything, people who don't have those things want, and they still aren't satisfied. Well, Chaucer asked the question, if the gold rusts, what will the iron do? If you can get gold to rust, just how bad will iron corrupt? Well, you don't have their money. You don't have their women or their men. You don't have their acclaim. You don't have their fame. And ladies and gentlemen, if they can't get any satisfaction in this world with all they've got, you aren't either. And isn't it just remarkable that people go and they live in such a way, especially young people, when they get out of the house, they think that somehow they're going to be the exception. Is that not remarkable? No one in the world has ever satisfied themselves with licentiousness. I mean, we call that the party life. By going Thursday night downtown Athens, somehow they're going to be the one exception that gets some satisfaction from hanging out at the bars after 10. By the way, let me say, there ain't nothing good that happens in downtown Athens after 10 o'clock at night, and you aren't going to be the exception at all. No one here is. You know, in other words, I'm going to be the exception. No one else has ever been satisfied. No one's ever prospered. No one's ever glorified God by living a foolish life. I'm going to be the exception. Is that not remarkable? Goodness gracious. Somebody please use their brain. Of course, Henry Ford said, thinking is the most difficult thing in the world to do. That's why most people don't do it. <laughs> do you know why 
the Rolling Stones and others can't get no satisfaction. Well, look with me back in chapter 4 where this word righteousness is used. And beginning in verse 20, down to 24, he's urging them to flee lewdness and uncleanness and greed. And then he says in verse 20, You've not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. The old man is dying and it is deteriorating and it's becoming a corpse. It's close to rigor mortis. Everybody thinks, I can liven this thing up and I can improve it. You know, I can be a corpse and somehow we're going to have a wonderful romance with one another, with a corpse. And so it's growing corrupt according to deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and watch this, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That is, when you come to Jesus Christ, God begins to recreate you. And it's like being a whole new person. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. And so you become a whole new person, and God recreates you into His own uh, image and the image of His Son in true righteousness and holiness. That means who you are, who you are is a new person, and your behavior has got to be suitable to that of a new person. But what a lot of people want to do, they, they want to misuse themselves. It's kind of like a human being getting on all four, all fours and eating out of a bowl and the dog sitting at the table. It's like using an automobile as a cooking utensil instead of for transportation. Well, no, no one would ever attempt to do that. And, and, and then pigs being, you know, you know, pigs are supposed to be pork chops, not hand grenades, right? And I won't tell you about cats, but uh, in any case... Oftentimes, whenever we behave in such a way that is outside the righteousness of God, we are misusing who we are. And, and, and so you cannot get any suitability in your life until you conform to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what demons want to do is that they want to tempt you to look at the Christian life and the commands of God as if they are unsuitable for human consumption. So the first thing you've got to do to protect yourself from demonic attack is begin to believe that the righteousness of God and the commands of God to righteousness are suitable for your life. As long as you see them as odd, you're vulnerable to demonic attack. But there's a second thing. Not only suitability, but you've got to trust its sequence. You've got to trust its sequence. Now what demons want you to do is that demons want you to consider doing the right thing with no consideration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Demons want you to engage in self-effort, courageous self-effort, heroic self-effort, determined self-effort, even adamant self-effort to do the right thing so long, and they'll let you do that. So long as you do not consider the power of the Holy Spirit and never express any faith in God to come through with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. You see, so often what people do when they hear a message like this about God's commands is that they get really determined and charged up and they psych themselves out, so to speak, and they determine they're going to do better when they leave church that day. That is a formula for defeat every time if that's all you do. 
you will never win. Listen, all God's ever expected you is failure. On your own, on your own, all you will ever do is fail. That's precisely what you do. If all you try to do is get determined and worked up and motivated to do better, if that's all you do, you're vulnerable to demonic attack. What you've got to do instead is that you do have to become determined, but you must first consider the power of the Holy Spirit and express faith in Him to be the power in your life. And so He performs it through you instead of you just simply doing it through self-effort. And by the way, when you do that, you know what will happen? When you don't consider the power of the Holy Spirit, you will begin to give yourself credit for any kind of success that you have, even if it's fleeting, even if it's uh, momentary, instead of giving glory to God. And God won't share His glory with anyone. Now look at chapter 5, verse 9, what it says here. Let's begin in verse number 8. Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of your determination." is goodness, right? No, no, let's try that again. For the fruit of your discipline is all goodness, right? No. For the fruit of the who? Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. In other words, the power to do righteousness comes from the Holy Spirit. You've got to be very, very careful as you seek to obey God that you get the right sequence here. And I want to outline just a few things for you that will help you. You've got to do it in sequence so that you don't set yourself up for arrogance if you succeed or discouragement if you fail. And here's the sequence. The first thing to do is the first thing to do is to pre-commit yourself to God's will. Romans 12, 1 and 2 say. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And that is the first step to a long list of commands in the book of Romans. In other words, before you ever get started, you tell God, God, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, no matter the cost. I'm going to do what you want me to do. I don't care who approves of it. I'm going to do what you want me to do, and I don't care if there's any personal benefit to me. God, my commitment is to do, my pre-commitment before we ever get this thing started, before I ever make a single effort, is to present me, myself, in my entirety and totality to you. And anything short will make you vulnerable to demonic attack. You see, some of you have probably failed so often, and one of the reasons may be is that you have approached the Christian life and the commands of God as a Chinese buffet. I like sesame chicken. But this fried rice, I won't have anything else. God doesn't serve the commandments that way. And I know we're Americans, but God is not one. God's not into all this choice. He says, you take it all or you get none of my power. You pre-commit yourself all to, to all that God is. But that's not all. You uh, pre-commit yourself, but then you admit your inadequacy or you admit uh, your inadequacy. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we're adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God. In other words, as you think through your obedience to God, you pre-commit yourself first, and then you go ahead and feel the inadequacy. Have you ever tried to do something for God and you felt intimidated to do it? Happens to me every Sunday and Wednesday before I come up and preach. It does. I am overwhelmed and appalled at the responsibility I have. I've never felt peaceful before I preached a sermon. And you know how torturous it was when I was working for the denomination. I was preaching three to six times a week. I was a mess. 
many times. I haven't improved much since then, but uh, I was a mess before I ever delivered a message. And it doesn't matter whether it's a small crowd or a large crowd, training or preaching, didn't make any difference at all. I felt the inadequacy, and that's exactly where you want to be for a moment before you try to obey God. That sense of inadequacy that you have is the Holy Spirit reminding you that you don't have the power and you're going to have to find it someplace else besides yourself. That's exactly where you want to be. So all of the secular talk about self-confidence and working yourself up and getting motivated is entirely misleading and makes you vulnerable to demonic attack. What you have to do is pre-commit yourself to everything God wants you to do. And then, and then you go ahead and you feel the inadequacy, but then you move on to another thing. And that's R, you ruminate. You start ruminating on the promises of God. Now David said in Psalms 119 verse 49 these words. He says, Remember your word to your servant upon which you have caused him or caused me to hope. Lord, remember to come through with your word, your promises, because you have led me to hope in you. So when you consider obedience to God, take a moment to ruminate, to mentally think through the promises of God that God will come through to help you in a time of need. One of my favorite is Psalms 84, verse 11. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk upright before Him. You say, wait a minute, that verse can't be for me because I'm not upright. You may not be, but listen, if you're in Jesus Christ, Jesus has clothed you with what? He's clothed you with His uprightness, and the Father treats you how? He treats you with the same favor and the same love as He does His own Son. That promise is for you, 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So because you're in Christ, you have as much access to the storehouse and promises of God as Jesus Christ does. Oh, you can sit out there quiet if you want to. I'm about to run around the building. So you ruminate and you think through how God has said, I'm going to come through for you. And you take His promise that He's made to you in His Word and you remind Him of it gently and with great respect and reverence. You said, Father, you'll come through. You will come through if I will obey you and trust you. And so you ruminate. That leads us to the next thing, and that is trust. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, And this is the victory which overcomes the world, even our faith. Even our faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes temptations and trials and struggles and demons that are in the world. Now, he will say later in verse number 19 of that same chapter, the whole world is under the sway of the devil. And so the victory that overcomes demonic activity in your world happens to be faith. And may I ask you, is there anybody in this world that you trust? Well, of course there is. You've done a lot of trusting today with your driving and any eating and drinking that you've done today. You trusted many people. Well, can't you trust the God who would slaughter His own Son at the cross? Can't you trust Him enough to ask Him to come through for you as you seek to obey Him? And then finally, you yield before Him. Yield before Him and obey His Word. You yield to Him in obedience. Now, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 is a verse really every serious Christian should have memorized. He says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Oh, that's good news. 
What this does, when you obey God, and you go ahead and just obey Him by faith, and you step out, you act as if God is going to answer and keep His promise. That's what you do. And so here's here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take a few moments before you obey God and think through your obedience to Him so that you become deliberate and intentional in your obedience so that you're not relying on yourself. With this approach, you're going to be much happier with your obedience than you otherwise could be. In other words, instead of being intimidated by the commandments of God, you approach them as a party. That's what you do. I remember uh, listening to this Baptist preacher one time from Philadelphia talk about speaking uh, in Honolulu, uh, Hawaii. He was there for several days, and the first evening or so, uh, he couldn't fall asleep at night, and so he left his hotel room in Honolulu, went around the corner to a diner. And he got there at about 3 in the morning. And when he walked in, he was there, he made an order, and all of a sudden, the whole diner was filled with prostitutes. They came in off the street and were taking a break from their work and and they sat there. Well, he's a Baptist preacher in a room full, and it made him a little nervous. And he said, this doesn't look good. But he sat there, and he didn't move. And he just listened uh, and all. And um, the woman sitting next to him uh, was talking to her friend. In a mournful, wistful voice, she said, you know something, tomorrow is my birthday. And her friend was a bit sarcastic and snarky with her. And she said, well, what do you want us to do? Bake you a birthday cake and throw you a party or something? She said, oh, no, 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 not that. And she changed the subject real quickly and was a little embarrassed. After about an hour, they left, and the preacher stayed there. And he talked to the fellow behind the counter who happened to be the owner with he and his wife. I don't know why they were doing the graveyard shift, but they were. And he said, that lady sitting next to me, what is her name? He said, Agnes, that's Agnes. She's a sweet lady, and, and uh, she's in here just about every night, and we, we've known her for several years. He said, you know, she said to her friend sitting next to us that um, tomorrow's her birthday, and I want us to do something. I want to throw her a party for her birthday. Do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. And uh, he called his wife from the back from the kitchen and said, hey, this man wants to throw Agnes a birthday party. And so they got excited, and they started making plans, and the next night at 3 a.m. in the morning, they were going to do it. And they arranged this with some of her friends, that they would bring her right at 3 o'clock for a surprise birthday party. Well, the hour came, the cake was baked, uh, the room was decorated, and 3 o'clock arrives, and everyone is in there, and they bring Agnes through the front door, and they all shout, Surprise! And out from the back, a lady comes with the cake, with birthday, a birthday candle on it, and then they start singing happy birthday to her. And she takes the cake, she receives it, and she blows out the candle, and she is stunned, and she's very, very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. And she says, can I take this back to my room? I've never had one of these before. And so she exits And she goes back to her apartment with the cake. Well, everyone's in stunned silence because they've just realized this poor woman's never had a birthday party. No one's ever thrown her one. No one's ever baked her a cake. And so Tony said, um, he just did what the Baptist preacher would do in a room full of prostitutes. He said, let's pray. (laughs) And so everybody bows their head, and he takes a moment, and he prays for Agnes and thanks God for her and asks God to help her to meet his grace and that uh, she would come to know uh, him and that God would take care of her needs 
and, and a variety of other uh, uh, benevolent things in prayer. And when he says amen, the owner of the diner says, hey, are, are, are you a preacher? He said, yes. He said, what kind of church do you go to? And he told him. He said, I'd go to a church like that. What kind of church is that? He said, I'm part of a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 o'clock in the morning. I want you to hear what I'm saying to you, friend. God is that gracious towards you. And frankly, I want this church to be that kind of church where everybody who's broken and humble can find the marvelous, wonderful love of God. And one of the things God does to guide us safely on our way is that He gives us His commandments. I don't want you to look at God's commandments as austerity or severity or as cruelty. Look at God's commandments as a party. God is directing you in ways of grace. And if you'll do this, you're going to find some victory if you will follow God and His commandments in sequence. Pre-commit yourself to it. Admit your inadequacy. Ruminate on the promises. Trust Him. And then yield to God for obedience. And God's going to change your life. And, and you'll accomplish something that you couldn't accomplish on your own. And so you've got to trust righteousness, suitability, and sequence. But then, righteousness, supremacy. Now, here's where demons will attack you. They will attack you in causing you to think that God's commands are somehow inferior to the alternatives in the world. And here's how they'll do it. Demons will want you to think and believe that you have to understand the command of God and you have to know it from beginning to end before you obey. If that's your position, you will never obey God. Uh, folks, I have to be honest with you. When I flip on the light switch, I don't know why the lights come on, but I'm not sitting in the dark until I do. I don't know how cattle can eat, brown cows can eat green grass and produce vanilla ice cream. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm not going hungry or without dessert until I do. You see, because I, I may not know, but I know the God who knows, and that's enough. If he knows, that's enough. And that's true for Bluebell, and that's true for lights. The electrician knows why the lights come on. I don't have to know all of that. The creamery in Brenham, Texas knows why ice cream can be vanilla from a brown cow in green grass, and that's enough. God knows why the commandments work, and that's enough. Listen, your the speed at which you obey God and whether you obey God or not, is more of a commentary on what you believe about God than anything you say. You can claim to believe God and trust God all you want to, but unless you hasten and hurry to obey Him, it's meaningless. So some people want to understand everything. I mean, that's true about leadership qualifications. That's true about marriage issues. That's true about a variety of sexuality. It makes no difference whether we understand it or not. Our God understands it. But listen, if you've got to understand everything before you obey God, you're making yourself vulnerable to demons. But there's another thing they'll do. Not only will they tempt you to try to understand everything before you obey God, but they also want you to seek human approval. They want you to build a consensus among your friends and family before you obey God. I don't want you to be unnecessarily divisive, but you've know you got to understand, not everyone's going to get on board with you before you do God's will. 
And then they will want you to seek personal benefit. You'll have to understand first how this command will benefit you personally. I've got news for you. God didn't give his whole word to benefit you. You and I are not the center of God's universe. Oh, we're cherished and we're treasured and we're loved, but the center of God's universe and the one that receives the greatest benefit does not happen to be you and me, but Jesus. And when you understand that, then you know your role in place. You see? And so demons will attempt you to take the commands of God and place them under the alternatives of the world if you don't understand them, if others don't approve of them, and if you don't see any benefit to them. And that's what goes into chapter 6, verse 1, which happens to be the only direct word spoken to children anywhere in the New Testament. The great apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, made one statement to children in the entire New Testament, and just one. A direct statement. Now, there are other statements about children, but not to children. And you have to understand, it's a very simple statement, and it is rooted not in understanding, not in approval of the world, and not in personal benefit, but it's rooted in righteousness. Look what it says in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is... It's what? It's right. It conforms to the righteousness of God. And we may not understand why it is that that is best for children to do, but God does, and frankly, parents do too. Now, I know that children want to understand, and that's not a bad thing, and I don't mind my children, for instance, asking, now why? And I kind of like to explain it. But you have to understand, sometimes there are just things parents want kids to do and they can't explain everything because they've gone through, over their decades of life, they've gone through a dozen or two dozen different thoughts and experiences, and they can't remember them all. In our family, sometimes we don't remember our kids' names. Okay? We'll try to call Luke's name, and we'll start with Jonathan and Hannah Grace and Sarah Kate. Frustrates the fire out of every one of them. It is kind of fun, by the way. See them melt down. But... We can't remember all the steps that we go through, and we can't remember uh, all the experiences that we've had, but over four in five decades of our life, we've had enough of this, and we've come to this solid conclusion, it is right, and that's enough. So once in a while, once in a while, my parents, you, you can turn me off at this point, but kids, once in a while, I, because I said so, needs to be enough for you. Now, parents try not to do that. Kids turn me off. Parents try not to do that. But once in a while, kids, parents turn me off. I said so needs to be enough. We, we can't remember all the experiences that we've had. And we're so busy taking care of you, we can't take a lot of time to think through that. And there's not, and we'll try to do the best that we can, but it's right. You may not understand it, but it's right. Others may not approve of it, but it's right. You know, I used to tell my mother, well, everyone else is doing it. She would say, of course, you know. Well, if everyone else was jumping off the Empire State Building, would you do it? You know what? I hated that because it was right. Oh. And, and so not everyone may approve of it. And you may have to stand alone. And, and then... You may not see any personal benefit to it at all. 
but it conforms to the character of God and the righteousness of God, and that happens to be enough. Reminds me of a a fellow in Cleveland, Ohio, by the name of Ricky Flowers. Ricky um, escaped from prison. He was a 20-year-old, and he ran, and uh, police caught up to him and pulled him over for a traffic violation. And so while the police officer walked back to the car to check out his license and everything, he um, put his car in gear and took off. And he turned right and turned left, and he saw a fence he could jump, and he stopped at it and got out of the car and jumped the fence and landed into the yard of a women's prison. (laughs) Folks, no one ever accused him of being very smart. You know what I'm saying? Whenever you run from God's commands, you are leaping a fence into a prison. When you insist on understanding everything and making sense of it all before you obey God, you're leaping into a prison. The other side of the prison has to be other people's approval. And the other side happens to be personal benefit. And frankly, when you leap a tall fence like that, oftentimes it's covered with barbed wire. And today, you've done that and, and you're wounded. You're hurt. Do you remember the ancient Greek myth of Achilles? His mother wanted him protected. And so she grabbed him by the heel and dipped him into a magic potion and she pulled him out the problem is she didn't dip him again to cover that place in the heel and so during the trojan war he was wounded in his achilles heel that one place was left uncovered and he died from the wound that's why you cannot go part way or even most of the way or even 99 percent of the way with god and his commands I will tell you this, if you've got anything outside the Lordship of Christ, a demon will find it and mess you up good and wound you. And some of you have come here wounded. You've come here wounded because of your personal choices. You've come here wounded because of your relationships and your family. Perhaps you've got a little something going on at work that no one sees. Expense reports, company property. You've wounded yourself. Would you please listen to me? Y'all don't pay me to ignore me. Would you please get it all under the Lordship of Christ? And I want to give you some hope here. You can get it all under not only His Lordship, where He's so much more competent to run our lives than we are. You can get it under the blood as well, and God will cover it. I need to warn you. If you'll uncover this before God, whatever you've got uncovered, unsurrendered to Him, whatever compromise you've got in your life. If you'll uncover it, God will cover it with grace in the blood of Christ. Oh, but if you keep covering it, one day God will uncover it. And you're going to hurt for good. Give it all to Jesus. So you've come wounded. You've wounded yourself by your choices and behavior. Alexander McLaren said, though, The kiss of God's forgiveness sucks the poison out of every wound. And that's what God wants to do for you today. He wants to draw out the poison with a sweet and tender kiss of His grace and forgiveness. 
You know, Jesus purchased, you, purchased that for you, and there's enough no matter what you've done. No matter what skeletons are rattling around in your closet, in hidden places, God can do that. And He's eager and willing. Listen, if you today were to reject entirely disobedience to God's will, just reject that, and turn in faith to Him and trust His cross and resurrection, there is nothing that you've done that is bigger than God. Nothing at all. And God would be willing to cancel your sin and give you great grace. I want us to pray about it. Would you stand with me, please? And we want to encourage you to come. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, and thank you for your righteousness as well. I pray, O oh God, that friends today would come to a point where they yield and surrender everything to you. And I pray they'd say yes to Jesus. I pray you'd build them into the kind of people that adore him and trust his commands. And I pray that you would do the spiritual warfare necessary to keep friends from allowing their pride now to get the best of them. I pray that you would eliminate pride and a false sense of security, any kind of need to appear good and put together before people and just get honest before you and bring their self-inflicted wounds to Jesus. And we praise you that Jesus Christ is enough and fully capable of healing every self-inflicted wound. Now, right where you're seated or where you're standing, would you turn to the Lord? Why don't you get honest with Him? Take a moment to do that. Now tell Him you believe He loves you, that He purchased your forgiveness at the cross, and He's alive. Why don't you tell him? And now that you've uncovered everything, ask him, ask him to kiss it and make it all better. He'd love to. Some of you have done that in a real way for the first time in your life. We want to invite you to come and go public for Jesus. Everyone Jesus called, he called publicly. And if you confess him before these here today, he'll confess you before his Father. Others of you need to become part of Beach Haven. We want you to come as well. We'll help you with that. Others need to follow in baptism. Or maybe God is doing something else in your life. And you and your bride need to come to this altar and seek God's help. Just by yourselves. Maybe you need to bring your family. Why don't you come? God is waiting and God is able. And He will not fail you. I'm going to finish my prayer and we're going to ask you to come. Lord, we do thank you. You can meet any need that is here today. You stand ready and willing. And you've got everything it takes to make a difference in someone's life today and eternity. Would you please?